You're listening to CISD on SOAS Radio. Good evening. Uh, my name is Dan Plesh. I'm the director of the Centre for International Studies and Diplomacy here at SOAS. Um, it's uh, uh, a much overused phrase, a rare privilege, but true enough in this instance to be able to uh, uh, welcome Lord Martin Rees. Um, he is the Astronomer Royal. He's a former Master of Trinity College at Cambridge um, and President of the Royal Society. Three jobs which I think uh, each of them would take up uh, uh, anybody else's time, although I saw him quoted as saying that the, uh, the role of Astronomer Royal, Royal was um, so vague that it could be performed in the afterlife, um, which is perhaps what uh, peering into the future will, will take us to. Um, you, you may wonder um, why uh, the uh, erstwhile School of Oriental and African Studies um, is, uh, is hosting uh, Lord Rees, although uh, our regions are certainly within the cosmos, um, uh, although we tend to look at them perhaps in a rather more parochial way here, here at SOAS. But there is one thing that, uh, uh, perhaps at least one thing apart from our common humanity that uh, um, Lord Rees and I and several others here have, it, have in common, and that is our uh, uh, membership of uh, Pugwash, British Pugwash, uh, a global network on science and world affairs uh, founded um, in the early 1950s uh, by uh, Joe Roplat. Um, with Albert Einstein and, uh, and Bertrand Russell. Um, and it is to mark um, uh, Joe Rotblatt, Sir Joseph Rotblatt's centenary, um, uh, a Nobel laureate uh, himself in 1995, uh, that we have come together um, today. And this uh, event uh, and reception uh, afterwards, just out, outside, you'll see afterwards, um, that it's uh, Rotblatt's, uh, Joe Rotblatt's centenary which brings us uh, all here today and there is a, a plaque um, just on the other side of the British Museum uh, on Museum Street um, over the uh, windows of the offices of the, the Pugwash group where Joe worked for so many years and uh, some of us were involved earlier on today in the unveiling of that plaque and indeed um, the very kind reception held by the Ambassador of Poland um, at uh, the Embassy after that. Um, I should declare one tiny interesting connection, um, which is uh, my own involvement in Pugwash and anti-nuclear affairs really comes back to my own family's involvement with Albert Einstein. My grandfather was his doctor, and although I didn't uh, have any, course, didn't, any direct relationship Certainly in the family, um, the anti-nuclear uh, pacifistic outlook, um, I think, came through us, if not um, through my mother's milk, through the discussions around the, the dinner table and the general culture of the family. Uh, and that's my own affinity at, at root to, to Pugwash. Um, Lord Rees, um, in spite uh, of his or august or perhaps because of his august roles and titles is also um, uh, I think one of the country's uh, principal uh, popularizers of, of science and science in world affairs um, his uh, cunningly titled uh, our final hour or our final century and um, earlier from here to infinity 
uh, are works which have had uh, um, uh, great attention and uh, I have to say as a uh, minor academic I can only look on the two million hits of his TED talk with some awe <laughs> and not perhaps the awe of looking at the cosmos but uh, the awe of a, a minor academic. Um, this evening um, Lord Rees will talk to us on the uh, uh, hopefully not entirely opaque topic of peering into the future the bumpy road ahead the um, the challenges we face as I'm not the first person to say it and the first time I think I came across it was as an undergraduate reading the works of Arnold Toynbee that the central challenge for civilization is to avoid the self-destructive potential of industrial civilization and I think his remark this evening will be in a far more erudite way than I can possibly manage to explore that dilemma uh, and as best we can help uh, to uh, look uh, ahead down that bumpy road and see what uh, the, the future may hold for us and hopefully it will still be there my favorite banner from the protests of the 1960s sort of 1980s I'm not quite that old um, <laughs> was uh, that of uh, historians for the right to work uh, we demand a continuous supply of history <laughs> On which note, Lord Rees. Well, thank you, Dan, for those kind words. Um, I often have to say that I'm not an astrologer, and I'll tell you a story about that. A few years ago, I met a well-known Indian tycoon, and he knew I had the title Astronomer Royal, and he asked with a straight face, do you do the Queen's horoscopes? <laughs> And I responded, well, if she wanted one, I'm the person she'd ask. He then seemed eager to hear my predictions. And I said, there'd be trouble in the Middle East, stock markets will fluctuate, and other wise things like that. He paid great attention to these insights. But I then came clean. I said, I was just an astronomer, not an astrologer. And he then lost all, insight, all interest <laughs> in my predictions. And rightly so, because scientists are on the whole, rotten forecasters, almost as bad as economists. <laughs> um, but I'd like to say that uh, politicians and lawyers don't have a sure touch either, and I'd like to give you one rather surprising historical uh, uh, flashback. One surprising futurologist was Lord Birkenhead, F.E. Smith, who was a crony of Churchill and Lord Chancellor in the 1920s. And he wrote a book entitled The World in 2030. He'd read Wells and Bernal. He imagined babies incubated in flasks, flying cars and such like. In contrast, he foresaw social stagnation. Let me give you one wonderful quote. He said, In 2030, women will still, by their wit and charms, inspire the most able men towards heights that they could never themselves achieve. <laughs> Well, enough said. <laughs> well, I'm going to make some forecasts, but mindful of these precedents, be very tentative. Astronomers think in billions of years, but even in that perspective, this century is special. The Earth's existed for 45 million centuries, humans for a few thousand centuries, technology for a few tens of centuries. 
But this century is the first when one species, ours, is so empowered that it has the planet's future in its hands. We're deep in an era that's called the Anthropocene. We have huge powers for good, but we could irreversibly degrade the biosphere or misdirected technology, nuclear, bio or cyber, could cause a catastrophic setback to civilization. As Dan mentioned, 14 years ago, I wrote a book on this theme, which I called Our Final Century. I put a question mark in, but the publishers cut that out. (laughs) And the American publishers changed the title to Our Final Hour. Americans like instant gratification and the reverse. (laughs) Well, I didn't think we'd wipe ourselves out but I did think we'd be lucky to avoid devastating setbacks and we'd have a bumpy ride, which is the title of this evening's talk. We've had one lucky escape already. At any time in the Cold War era, when armament levels escalated beyond all reason, a nuclear war could have killed a billion people and devastated the fabric of civilization. The superpowers could have stumbled towards Armageddon through muddle or miscalculation. The Cuban missile standoff in 1962 was the most dangerous moment in history. Robert McNamara was then the US Secretary of Defense, and he later wrote that we came within a hair's breadth of nuclear war without realizing it. He said, it's no credit to us that we escaped. Khrushchev and Kennedy were lucky as well as wise. Nuclear weapons were, of course, developed during World War II in Los Alamos. And many of the scientists who worked there returned with relief to academia. But they still felt a lifelong obligation to campaign to control the powers that they had helped unleash. And preeminent among those was Joseph Rotblat. He was the motive force behind the famous Einstein Einstein-Russell Memorandum, which inaugurated the Pugwash Conferences. And he was the driving force behind them right until his death in 2005. Indeed, earlier today, some of us were, as we've heard, commemorating him by unveiling a plaque outside the office opposite the British Museum where he worked surrounded by great piles of papers, as you can see. He didn't live in the era of the paperless office, and we still don't. (laughs) Some Chicago-based ex-Los Alamos physicists, with the same motivation as Joe Rothblatt, started a journal called the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists. That's been going more than 70 years now. And the logo on its cover is a clock. The closeness of whose hands to midnight indicates the editorial board's judgment of how precarious the world situation is. It was close to midnight in the Cold War. When the Cold War ended, it went back to 17 minutes to midnight, but it's been creeping forward, and it's now two and a half minutes to midnight. There's less chance of tens of thousands of of nuclear bombs being let off than in the Cold War. There are fewer weapons in the world altogether, but I think there's a bigger chance than ever of some nuclear weapons going off in a localised conflict. But there are other concerns too that motivate the advance of the clock. The Promethean powers of 21st century science, 
in contrast to nuclear energy, which is 20th century science, confront us with new threats and new ethical conundrums. They may not threaten a sudden worldwide catastrophe. The doomsday clock may be quite, not quite such a good metaphor, but they are in total just as disquieting. Even with a very cloudy crystal ball, there are some trends that we can predict decades ahead. One of them is the world population. It's almost inevitable that by mid-century, the world will be more crowded, and humanity's collective footprint on the planet will be heavier. 50 years ago, world population was about 3 billion. It's now about 7.4 billion. The growth has been mainly in Asia and Africa. And it's shown rather well in this map where the uh, population growth in the last 30 years indicates the size of the regions. And the uh, inflated regions are India um, and, uh, and Africa. The number of births per year worldwide has actually peaked a few years ago and is going down. Nonetheless, the world population is forecast to rise to about 9 billion by 2050. And that's partly because most people in the developing world are young, they're yet to have children, and they will live longer than their predecessors. Look at these two age histograms. On the left, that's the age distribution of men and women in uh, West Africa. And on the right-hand side, Western Europe. And what's going to happen we hope, is that most of the young people in West Africa will live as long as Europeans now do, and so that will in itself increase the world's population, even if the birth rate stabilises. And as well as growth in the population, the world's getting more urbanised. Even by 2030, Lagos, Sao Paulo and Delhi, for instance, will have populations exceeding 30 million. And to prevent these megacities becoming turbulent dystopias is surely a major challenge for governance. Population growth seems currently rather under-discussed. And that's maybe because doom-laden forecasts in the 1970s by the Club of Rome, Paul Ehrlich and others have proved off the mark. Up to now, food production has more than kept pace with population. Famines occur, but they're due to wars or maldistribution, not overall food shortages. But some also deem it a taboo subject to discuss, tainted by association with eugenics in the 20s and 30s, with Indian policies under Indira Gandhi, and more recently with China's hardline one-child policy. Can the Earth carry 9 billion people? I don't think we need to be gloomy or panicky on this front. Because, although I'm not an expert, I get the impression that water conserving and agriculture, perhaps involving GM crops, could feed that number by mid-century. The buzzword is sustainable intensification of agriculture. But lifestyle changes are needed. The world couldn't sustain even its present population if everyone lived like Americans do today. 
using as much energy and eating as much beef. You've got to remember what Gandhi said, there's enough in the world for everyone's need, not for everyone's greed. What about beyond 2050? Population trends there are harder to predict, because they depend on the number of children who will be had by uh, uh, um, those who are very young today and those as yet unborn. <coughs> they will depend <coughs> on what those future generations decide about the number and spacing of their children. Enhanced education and empowerment of women, obviously a benign priority in itself, does, of course, tend to reduce fertility rates. But the demographic transition hasn't yet reached India and sub-Saharan Africa, as you saw. And I know my colleague Parthidas Gupta has argued that maybe even when there is education, for social reasons, families in Africa may continue to be preferentially large. And if that happens, then the population of Africa could double again between 2050 and 2100, from 2 billion to 4 billion. And that would raise the world's population to 11 billion. And Nigeria then would have as big a population as Europe and North America combined. So that's one scenario, and this uh, diagram here shows the uncertainty depending on the mean uh, number of, uh, uh, of children per woman. Uh, the middle one uh, is, the, is the best guess, but uh, uh, an extra 0.5 child per woman goes on the upper one and down there. And those are global averages. <coughs> well, <coughs> how bad would it be if the population kept on going up? Optimists remind us that each extra mouth brings also two hands and a brain. Nonetheless, the higher the population becomes, the greater will be all pressure on resources, especially if the developing world narrows its gap with the developed world in its per capita consumption. And the harder it will be, I'd have thought, for Africa to escape the poverty trap. So I personally think and hope that it would be better if the global figure were to decline after 2050 rather than rise. But that will depend, essentially, um, on, uh, on parental choices. Moreover, if humanity's collective impact on nature pushes too hard against what the Swedish environmentalist Johan Rockström calls planetary boundaries, then the resultant ecological shock could irreversibly impoverish our biosphere. <coughs> Extinction rates already are rising. <coughs> We're destroying the Book of Life before we've read it. Biodiversity is a crucial component of human well-being. We're clearly harmed if fish stocks dwindle to extinction. There are plants in the rainforest whose gene pool might be useful to us. But for many environmentalists, Preserving the richness of our biosphere has value in its own right, over and above what it means to us humans. To quote the great ecologist E.O. Wilson, mass extinction is a sin that future generations will least forgive us for. So the world's getting more crowded. And as a second firm prediction, it'll gradually get warmer. Now, in contrast to population issues, Climate change is certainly not under-discussed, 
though it may be still underacted upon. The famous Keeling curve shows the concentration of carbon dioxide over the last 50 years and how it's rising. You can see the rise there. Um, the, the oscillations uh, are seasonal because there are more trees in the northern hemisphere than the south, and when they lose their leaves, that puts carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, which is taken out again in the spring. So this indicates the precision of the measurements, but also, apart from the obvious seasonal effect, there is the global rising trend, which is largely uh, due to um, the consumption of fossil fuels. And the fifth IPCC report worked out various models and predicted what the temperature projections were for different assumptions about rates of fossil fuel use in the future. And this is a, just a diagram uh, showing this. Um, I, sh I show this to illustrate uh, that there is a big spread. There's obviously a, a spread in the projections about how much fossil fuel we'll use, but even if we uh, make particular assumptions about how much uh, fossil fuels are burnt, there's an uncertainty in the science. It's important to bear in mind that the science is still uncertain, and each projection has an uncertainty indicated by those vertical bars on the right. And the reason for that uncertainty is although we know the effect of, uh, of rising CO2 as a greenhouse gas, what we don't know is the correlated extra effects of rising water vapour concentration and changes in cloud cover. We don't know to what extent they will amplify the effect of CO2 alone. Um, there are some arguments there, and people put in the best guess, but we have to accept those are very uncertain, and that's why climate uh, projections are uncertain um, in terms of rate of temperature rise by or a factor of two or so. Well, despite the uncertainties, the science does tell us that under business-as-usual scenarios, we can't rule out, by 2100, really catastrophic warming and tipping points being crossed, triggering long-term trends like the melting of Greenland's ice. Sadly, some people do deny this. But the point I want to make is that even those who accept the science, who accept these curves and their uncertainty, they differ in their recipes about the policy response. And these differences stem not so much from differences in science, but from differences in economics and in ethics. In particular, in how much obligation we should feel towards future generations. For instance, some of you may know about Born Lomberg and his Copenhagen consensus of distinguished economists. They apply commercial star discounting as you would if you were deciding where to put up an office building in London. And if you do that, you in effect write off what happens beyond 2050. So unsurprisingly, given those assumptions, Lomberg downplays the priority of addressing climate change in comparison with shorter-term efforts to help the world's poor. But if you care about those who live into the 22nd century and beyond, then as other economists like Nick Stern and Weizmann at Harvard argue, you will deem it worth paying an insurance premium now to protect those generations against the worst-case scenarios. So, above all, 
one's policy response depends on an ethical issue. In optimising people's life chances, should we discriminate on grounds of date of birth? So even those who agree that there's a significant risk of climate catastrophe a century hence will differ in how urgently they advocate action today. Their assessment will depend on expectations of future growth, on optimism about technological fixes. But above all, it depends on an ethical issue in optimising people's life chances should we discriminate on grounds of date of birth. As a parenthesis, I'd note there is one policy context where an essentially zero discount rate is applied, and that's to radioactive waste disposal, where the depositories are required to prevent leakage for 10,000 years, or in the case of Yucca Mountain, a million years. Somewhat ironic when we can't plan the rest of energy policy even 20 or 30 years ahead. Consider this analogy. Supposing that astronomers had tracked an asteroid and calculated that it would hit the Earth in, say, 2080, 65 years from now. Not with certainty, but with, say, 10% probability. Would we relax, saying it's a problem that can be set on one side for 50 years, People will then be richer, and it may turn out you're going to miss the Earth anyway. I don't think we would. There'd surely be a consensus that we should start straight away and do our damnedest to find ways to deflect it or mitigate its effect. Many still hope that our civilization can segue smoothly towards a low-carbon future. The pledges made at the Paris conference in December 2015 were a positive step. But even if they're honoured, this may not happen fast enough to prevent CO2 concentrations rising to dangerous levels. Politicians seldom take a long-term view, and they won't gain much, by, much resonance by advocating unwelcome lifestyle changes when the benefits accrue mainly to distant parts of the world and are decades in the future. But I'd like to mention one measure to mitigate climate change that genuinely seems a win-win scenario. And this is to push harder towards clean energy. To do that, nations should accelerate their research and development into all forms of low-carbon energy generation. Renewables, fourth-generation nuclear, fusion and the rest and into other technologies where parallel progress is crucial, especially storage, batteries, compressed air, pumped storage, flywheels, etc., and smart grids. That's why an encouraging outcome of the Paris Conference was an initiative called Mission Innovation, endorsed by more than 20 nations, which was a campaign to double publicly funded R&D into clean energy by 2020 and there's been a parallel pledge by Bill Gates and other private investors to do the same thing. The target is a modest one, because presently only 2% of publicly funded R&D is devoted to these challenges. Why shouldn't that percentage be comparable to the amount spent on medical research or certainly on defence research? 
the faster these clean energy technologies advance, the sooner will their prices fall so they become affordable to developing countries where more generating capacity will be needed, where the health of the poorest billions is jeopardized by, for instance, in, in India, smoky stoves burning wood or dung, and where there would otherwise be pressure to build coal-fired power stations. It would be hard to think of a more inspiring challenge for young engineers than devising clean, affordable energy for the world. But if this fails, and if it's clear 20 years from now that our climate seems heading irreversibly into dangerous territory, if the so-called climate sensitivity is high, then there may be pressure for panic measures. Geoengineering. This would involve a plan B, being fatalistic about continuing dependence on fossil fuels, but combating their effects by either a massive investment in carbon capture and storage, or else by geoengineering. It's feasible, for instance, to inject enough aerosols into the stratosphere to cool the world's climate. Indeed, what's scary is this might be within the resources of a single nation, even a single corporation, and there could be unintended side effects. Moreover, the warming will return with a vengeance if the countermeasures were ever discontinued. And other consequences of rising CO2, for instance, the deleterious effect of ocean acidification, would be unchecked. And we don't understand climate well enough to understand the, how the climate patterns shift with the warming. Geoengineering, by any technique, would be a political nightmare. Not all nations would want to adjust the thermostat the same way. And very elaborate climatic modelling would be needed in order to calculate the regional impacts of any artificial intervention. The only beneficiaries would be the lawyers. They'd have a real bonanza if nations could litigate over bad weather. Nonetheless, I think it's prudent to explore geoengineering techniques enough to clarify which options make sense and perhaps damp down undue optimism about any technical quick fix of our climate. We should surely be evangelists for many new technologies. Without them, the world can't provide food or sustainable energy for an expanding and more demanding population, as I've emphasised. But we need wisely directed technology. Advanced renewables are wise goals. I'd argue that geoengineering techniques probably aren't. But now, what about other technologies that pervade our lives? Can we cope with their headlong rate of advance? I worry because we're getting more vulnerable. Our increasingly interconnected world depends on elaborate networks. Electric power grids, air traffic control, international finance, globally dispersed manufacturing, and so forth. And unless these networks are highly resilient, their benefits could be outweighed by catastrophic, albeit rare, breakdowns that cascade through the system. Our cities will be paralysed without electricity, air travel can spread a pandemic worldwide within days, and social media 
can spread panic and rumour literally at the speed of light. Advances in microbiology, diagnostics, vaccines and antibiotics, offer prospects of containing pandemics, as well as huge prospects for improving health. But this same research has controversial aspects. For instance, in 2012, research groups in Wisconsin and in Holland showed it was surprisingly easy to make the influenza virus, there it is, more virulent and more transmissible at the same time. And to some, this was a scary portent of things to come. And in 2014, the US federal government decided to cease funding these so-called gain-of-function experiments. And the new CRISPR-Cas9 technique for gene editing, also hugely promising, raises ethical concerns. For instance, already there have been Chinese experiments on human embryos. And gene drive programs can be deployed to wipe out species. For instance, the mosquito that carries the Zika virus, for instance. And there are some lovers of uh, brown squirrels who said we can get rid of all the grey squirrels. But disturbing a natural ecology, of course, does risk unintended consequences. Back in the early days of recombinant DNA research, leading biologists met in Asilomar, California, and they agreed guidelines on what experiments should and shouldn't be done. This seemingly encouraging precedent has motivated several meetings in the last few years to discuss recent developments in the same spirit, involving national academies, for instance. But today, 40 years after the first Asilomar conference, the research community is far more broadly international and more influenced by commercial pressures. And so I'd worry that whatever regulations are imposed on prudential grounds or ethical grounds can't be enforced worldwide any more than the drug laws can or the tax laws. I worry that whatever can be done will be done by someone somewhere. And that's a nightmare. Whereas an atomic bomb can't be built without large-scale special-purpose facilities, biotech involves small-scale dual-use equipment. Indeed, biohacking is burgeoning even as a hobby and a competitive game. And we know all too well that technical expertise doesn't guarantee balanced rationality. The global village will have its village idiots, but they will now have global range. The rising empowerment of tech-savvy groups, or even individuals, empowered by bio as well as cyber technology, will pose an intractable challenge, I think, to all governments and aggravate the tension between freedom, privacy and security. These concerns about bio-error and bio-terror, which in fact I highlighted in my book nearly 15 years ago, they're relatively near-term within the next 10 or 15 years. But let's now look forward to 2050 and beyond. Well, here we must be cautious, because the smartphone, the web and their ancillaries are crucial to our network lives, but they'd have seen magic as little as 20 years ago. So if you want to look 30 or more years ahead, we have to keep our minds open, or at least ajar, 
to innovations that might now seem science fiction. But let's have a go and think about what might happen. We're getting more vulnerable and we are going to have to worry more about biotech, I think. For instance, the great physicist Freema Dyson conjectures we may get to a time when children will be able to design and create new organisms, just as routinely as his generation played with chemistry sets. Well, if it did become possible to, as it were, play God on a kitchen table, our ecology and even our species may not long survive unscathed. So let's hope that is science fiction. What about another transformative technology, robotics and AI? Here, as I'm sure you all know, there's been exciting advances in what's called generalised machine learning. The company DeepMind, now part of Google, but actually just down about a mile from here, they've achieved a remarkable feat of getting a computer to beat the world champion at Go. And Carnegie Mellon University has developed a machine that can bluff and calculate as well as the best human poker players. Well, of course, as you probably know, it's more than 20 years since IBM's deep blue computer beat Kasparov, the world chess champion. So this may not seem a big deal, but it really is very different. That's because deep blue is programmed in detail by expert players. In contrast, the machines that play Go play Go, gained expertise simply by learning themselves. They were given the rules and they played against themselves better and better. And there's a wonderful paper in Nature just a week before last, how the latest one became as good as a world champion in, in one day and beat everyone else after three days. And the designers don't themselves know how the machines make what turn out to be insightful moves. Of course, the reason the computers have the edge is not only very clever programming, but also speed. And uh, we, we know that they can uh, work a million times faster than our brains can, and so they succeed by brute force methods. The Go-playing computer could play a million games against itself in just a day. And computers learn to identify dogs, cats, and human faces by crunching through millions of images not the way babies learn. <coughs> and they learn to translate by reading millions of pages of, for example, multilingual European Union documents. They never get bored by those. <laughs> but advances are patchy. Robots can learn all these things, but they're still clumsier than a child in moving pieces on a real chessboard. They can only just tie shoelaces and they can't cut old people's toenails, to take two examples. But sensor technology, speech recognition, information searches and so forth are advancing apace. What will this do to the labour market? This has been discussed a lot. They won't just take over manual work. Indeed, plumbing and gardening will be among the hardest jobs to automate. But they will take over routine legal work medical diagnostics, and even surgery, and computer coding. And the big social and economic co question is this. 
Will this new machine age be like earlier disruptive technologies, the car, for instance, and create as many jobs as it destroys, or is it really different this time? There's a big debate about this. It's clear that the money earned by the robots could generate huge wealth for an elite. But to preserve a healthy society, we require massive redistribution to ensure that everyone has at least a living wage. Some people talk about giving people sort of wages a handout, but I think what we should do is to uh, have massive socialist redistribution and to create and upgrade public service jobs where the human element is crucial and is now undervalued and demand is huge, especially carers for young and old, where we ought to have at least one carer for every old person, and also other jobs like custodians, gardeners in public parks, and so forth, to give people not just a wage, but a dignified job that's properly paid in a way that jobs like that aren't at the moment. But let's look further ahead. If robots could observe and interpret their environment as adeptly as humans can, they would truly be perceived as intelligent beings to which or to whom we can relate. And these machines pervade popular culture, movies like Her, Transcendence, Ex Machina and the rest. Well, would we have obligations towards them? We worry if our fellow humans and even some animals can't fulfil their natural potential. So should we feel guilty if our robots are underemployed or bored? And what if a machine develops a mind of its own? Would it stay docile or would it go rogue? If it could infiltrate the internet and the internet of things, it could manipulate the rest of the world. It may have goals utterly orthogonal to human wishes or even treat humans as an encumbrance. Where some AI pundits take this rather nightmare scenario seriously, and they think the field already needs guidelines, just as biotech does. But others, for instance Rodney Brooks at Harvard, who uh, developed the first robotic vacuum cleaner, he thinks these concerns are premature, and that for a long time we should worry less about artificial intelligence than about real stupidity. But be that as it may, it's likely that society will be transformed by autonomous robots, even though the jury's out on whether they will be idiot savants or display superhuman capabilities. There's also, incidentally, disagreement about the route towards human-level intelligence. Some think we should emulate nature and reverse-engineer the human brain. Others say that is misguided as designing flying machines by copying how birds fly. And philosophers debate whether consciousness is special to the wet organic brains of humans, apes and dogs, so that robots, even if their intellect seems superhuman, will still lack self-awareness or inner life, or is consciousness something which emerges when you get a network above any level of complexity. The futurologist Ray Kurzweil, who now works for Google, he argues that once machines have surpassed human capabilities, they could themselves design and assemble a new generation of even more powerful ones. There'd be an intelligence explosion. He thinks that humans could transcend biology by merging with computers. In old-style spiritualist parlance, 
they would go over to the other side. Kurzweil is a prominent proponent of this so-called singularity, whereby there's this runaway process where everything exponentially increases to uh, beyond human intelligence. But he's in his 60s and he's worried this may not happen in his lifetime. So he wants his body frozen until this nirvana is reached. He takes about 100 pills a day to keep going, but he still wants to be frozen. And uh, he is uh, uh, going to hope that uh, he can then be revived. I was once interviewed by a group of these so-called cryonic enthusiasts based in California, where else, called the Society for the Abolition of Involuntary Death. These people will freeze your body. There's a company in Arizona that does this, so that when immortality is on offer, you can be resurrected or your brain downloaded. But I told them I'd rather end my days in an English churchyard than a Californian refrigerator. <laughs> and they derided me as a deathist, a very old-fashioned person. But I was surprised to find that three academics in this country had gone in for this cryonic treatment. Two had paid the full whack. The third had taken the cut price option of wanting just his head frozen. <laughs> I'm glad to say they were from Oxford, not from your university or mine. <laughs> um, but, of course, more seriously, research on ageing is being seriously prioritised. We don't know if the benefits will be incremental or is ageing, in a sense, a disease that can be cured. Dramatic life extension would plainly be a wild card in population projections with huge social ramifications. But it may happen, along with human enhancement in other forms. And now a quick digression into my special interest, space. Because this is where robots will surely be transformative. During this century, the whole solar system will be explored by Fertilla's of miniaturised probes, far more advanced than the robot that the European Space Agency landed on a comet, and NASA's probe, New Horizons, which sent back these pictures of Pluto. These two instruments sent 10 years on their journey, and Pluto's 10,000 times further away than the Moon. And the amazing Cassini probe, which just plunged into Saturn recently, was launched more than 20 years ago. And it's a real antique. It's 1990s technology. When you think of how your smartphones changed in the last 20 years, think how much better we could do now. And better, too, than the Curiosity probe, uh, which is now trundling around the surface of Mars. It's about the size of a small car. Well, later this century... Giant robotic fabricators may assemble vast lightweight structures in space. Gossamer-thin radio reflectors or solar energy collectors, for instance. Maybe using raw materials mined from an asteroid or from the moon. But what about human spaceflight? This has languished. It's 45 years since the last Apollo astronauts returned from the moon. The Apollo program, of course, was motivated by superpower rivalry to beat the Russians. NASA was then getting 4% of the US federal budget. It now gets 0.6%. And 
advances in robotics and AI are eroding any practical case, any practical need to send people into space. Nonetheless, I hope that some people will someday follow the robots. Though it will be as risk-seeking adventurers, not for any practical goal. The most promising developments are spearheaded by private companies. Elon Musk's SpaceX has launched unmanned payloads and docked with the space station and has recovered and reused the launch rocket's first stage. And that presses his real cost savings. He hopes soon to offer orbital flights to paying customers. And worthy adventurers are signing up for a week-long trip around the far side of the moon, going further from Earth than any human's ever been, but not actually uh, landing on the moon. I'm told they've sold the ticket for the second flight, but not the first flight, and that perhaps tells you something. <laughs> well, we should surely acclaim these private enterprise efforts in space. They can tolerate higher risks than the Western government could impose on publicly funded civilian astronauts, and thereby cut costs compared to NASA or ESA. But they should be promoted as adventures or extreme sports. The phrase space tourism should be avoided because it lulls people into unrealistic confidence. But I would bet that by 2100, some courageous pioneers in the mould of, say, um, Felix Baumgartner, who wrote the sound barrier falling freely from a high-altitude balloon, or our own Sir Ranulph Fiennes, who has done all kinds of crazy things, including dragging a sledge across the Antarctic in winter, people like that may have established bases independent of the Earth on Mars, or maybe on asteroids. Elon Musk himself, who's 46 years old, says he wants to die on Mars, but not on impact. And he might make it. <laughs> but don't ever expect mass emigration from Earth. No way in our solar system offers an environment even as clement as the Antarctic or the top of Everest. It's a dangerous delusion promoted by Musk and by my colleague Stephen Hawking to think that space offers an escape from Earth's problems. There's no planet B. We've got to solve the world's problems here. Dealing with climate change is a doddle compared to terraforming Mars. Indeed, space is an inherently hostile environment for humans. For that reason, even though we may wish to regulate genetic and cyborg technology on Earth, we should surely wish these space pioneers good luck in using all such techniques to adapt to alien conditions. They'll be free from all terrestrial regulations, and they'll have maximal incentive to do so. Indeed, these spacefarers may, in a sense, spearhead a post-human era, evolving within a few centuries into a new species. Let me expand on this. The stupendous time spans of the evolutionary past are now part of common culture outside fundamentalist circles in Kentucky and the Muslim world, at least. But most people still tend to regard humans as the culmination of the evolutionary tree. And that hardly seems credible to me as an astronomer. We know that our sun formed four and a half billion years ago, but we also know it got six billion more years before the fuel runs out. And the expanding universe will continue, perhaps forever, 
And to quote Woody Allen, eternity is very long, especially towards the end. <laughs> so we may not even be at the halfway stage of evolution. It may take just decades to develop human-level AI, or it may take centuries. But be it as it may, it's but an instant compared to the cosmic future stretching ahead. And that will probably uh, be a future dominated by these machines, which uh, will, will want to spread because they won't want gravity, they won't want an atmosphere. But my crucial message is that even in this concertinaed timeline that astronomers envisage, extending billions of years into the future as well as into the past, this century is special. It's a century when humans can jumpstart the transition to electronic and potentially immortal entities, which will spread their influence far beyond the Earth and far transcend our limitations, or to take a darker view, the century when our follies could foreclose all that immense future potential. We need to worry more about this. We fret unduly about small risks. Air crashes, carcinogens in food, low radiation doses, etc. But I'd argue we're in denial about some newly emergent threats, which may seem improbable, but whose consequences could be globally devastating. Some of these are environmental, others are the potential downsides of novel technologies. So how can those of us concerned about these issues influence policymakers? The trouble is that even the best politicians focus mainly on the urgent and parochial, and on getting re-elected. Mr Juncker of the EU famously said, most people knew what the right policy was, but they didn't know how to adopt that policy and get re-elected. And this is an endemic frustration, I know, for many of my friends who've been official scientific advisors to government. Because to attract politicians' attention, you must get headlined in the press and fill their inboxes. So I think for that reason, the scientists can have more leverage indirectly by campaigning so that the public and the media amplify their voice rather than via more official and direct challenge. They can engage, as Rothblatt and the other atomic scientists did, by involvement with NGOs or campaigning groups or via blogging and journalism or through political campaigning. And, of course, the... Atomic scientists set a model for us, but there's now scope for campaigners on all the issues I've mentioned, and indeed many others. Scientists are universal culture, spanning all nations and all faiths, and so scientists confront fewer impediments in straddling political divides and addressing these global issues. And, of course, the issues I've addressed are global, coping with potential shortage of food, water and resources, Transitioning to low-carbon energy can't be solved by each nation separately. Nor can threat reduction. Indeed, the key issue is whether nations need to give up more sovereignty to new organisations along the lines of the International Atomic Energy Authority, WHO, etc. And whether national academies and similar bodies can get more involved. I think all of us as scientists should be prepared to devote some of our efforts towards public policy and to engage with governments business and NGOs. In fact, the great mathematician 
Michael Atia, who was a president of the International Pug Watch for five years, he offered a rather nice analogy. He said, if you've got teenage children, you've got limited influence over them. But you're a poor parent if, despite that, you don't care about them. Likewise, scientists can't control how their ideas are used, but they shouldn't be indifferent to the fruits of their ideas, their creations. We need more focus on issues that are long-term in political perspective and even if a mere instant in the history of our planet. And just as a digression, I'd like to uh, make another comment on timescales, which is something that strikes me whenever I go to Ely Cathedral, which is about 10 miles away from where, where I live. And you just think of the people who built this cathedral. They had, knew nothing beyond Europe. The Fens were their world. They thought the world may only last another thousand years. They lived in immense hardship with primitive technology, but despite that, they put up buildings like this, which still inspire us centuries later, even though they knew they wouldn't live to see them finished. And I find it ironic that now, when we have horizons stretching billions of years, we find it hard to plan more than 10 or 20 years ahead and can't take on board these, uh, these new technologies. So I think my final message is, is this, that 21st century technology should allow us to offer a high quality of life, even to 9 billion people, but we need to focus on the problems we are ourselves causing and think on a timescale of a century, which is an instant in the cosmic perspective, but an eternity for politicians. We're all on this crowded world together. Spaceship Earth is hurtling through the void. Its passengers are anxious and fractious. Their life support system is vulnerable, both to disruption and to breakdown. And it's too little planning, too little horizon scanning, too little awareness of long-term risks. And I'd like to say that a few of us, certainly in Cambridge and a few other un universities, are now trying to use our convening power to get experts together to try and address these risks, to see which risks are dismissible as science fiction and which are credible, and to try to uh, uh, see how we can minimise the downsides of new developments so that we can harness the advantages and uh, minimise the risks. It's an important um, maxim that the unfamiliar is not the same as the improbable, so we should not think that these uh, downsides are improbable. Well, I want to finish off completely with some words from two scientific sages from the past, both people who I think uh, Joe Rothbard would have admired. First, H.G. Wells. Back in 1902, more than a century ago, he was already alert to the risk of global disaster. Let me quote from him. He said, It is impossible to show why certain things should not utterly destroy and end the human story and make all our efforts vain. Something from space or pestilence, or some great disease of the atmosphere, some trailing cometary poison, some great emanation of vapour from the interior of the earth, or new animals to prey on us, or some drug or wrecking madness in the mind of man. But nonetheless, he retained a vision. Humanity, he proclaimed, has come some way, and the distance we have travelled gives us some earnest of the way we have to go. All the past is but the beginning of a beginning, all that the human mind has accomplished is but the dream before the awakening. Well, his rather purple prose still resonates 
more than a century later. Were he writing today, he'd have been elated by our expanding vision of the cosmos and of life, but he'd have been even more anxious, I think, about the perils we might face. He reflects the mix of optimism and anxiety and of speculation and of science, which I've tried to offer in this talk. And I want to give just a final word to another great sage. This is uh, Peter Medawar, who worked at University College, just across the road, and he gave the Reith Lectures about 50 years ago. And uh, what he said was that the bells are tolled for mankind are like the bells of alpine cattle. They're attached to our own necks. And it must be our fault if they don't make a tuneful and melodious sound. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. I think uh, from the, our uh, humble trade here, we can be sure we can only navigate uh, this human journey through dialogue and diplomacy. And I think hopefully it will be hard to see the trade of diplomacy replaced by artificial intelligence mm -hmm. in the immediate future. Mm -hmm. So hopefully we'll still have uh, jobs to go to and students to train. Right. Uh, however, I think we have a, a couple of minutes where we can take uh, some questions before sure. going and having a well-earned um, drink. And I see one hand already, already reaching uh, to the stars. Right. Uh, yes, sir. Uh, so I, was, I really enjoyed your talk and, and uh, the, the vision you laid out. I think is, 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 uh, the, the issues you bring up, I think, are, are what are going to be important in the future. I was wondering where you think the role, what role do you think do spirituality and religion play uh, in shaping <coughs> the future? Uh, you know, young people, myself included, are mm. not particularly religious, and especially mm. when you brought up the cathedral mm -hmm. and people building something that they're not going to see the end of. I yes. think religion and spirituality are powerful vehicles for that, and moving into a world yep. where that's less and less common. Mm. I feel like that is potentially maybe, I mean, you know, like one of the pitfalls, one of the, mm. one of the difference maker. Well, I agree. I mean, religion uh, makes us realize what we have in common, not what divides us, and that's the great virtue of religion. But I would like to uh, uh, illustrate what you say with a specific example. Um, uh, I'm not religious, but I am a member of the Council of the Papal Academy of Sciences. And the Papal Academy has about 70 members of all faiths and none. And it organized, among the meetings it organized, in the middle of 2014, a conference on um, science of uh, climate and the environment. And it had many the world's best scientists, famous names you'd know, and also economists like Joe Stiglitz and Jeffrey Sachs. And um, it, uh, um, it, it was an extremely important conference, and it was attended by senior people in the church, and I think it can claim to have done a great deal to provide an impetus for the Pope's encyclical the following year, um, and to have given it a sound scientific basis. And that encyclical was important, because the first time the church actually said that humans had a duty to the non-human environment, clearly, and it was an important input into the um, uh, lead-up to the 
Paris Climate Conference. In fact, the Pope got a standing ovation at the UN when he presented it, and it surely had an influence um, in uh, Latin America, Africa, and East Asia in particular. Uh, not in the US Republican Party, I fear, but in other <laughs> places it did. Um, but uh, the point, uh, to link with, with your, your, uh, your thoughts, uh, whatever one thinks of the Catholic Church, no one can doubt its, um, uh, its, 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 its global reach, um, its uh, long-term vision, and its concern with the world's poor. And uh, by uh, um, engaging with it, um, I think scientists amplified their voice uh, to the million people who take what the Pope says seriously. So that's, that's an example. And I think the, uh, the world's religions clearly are allies in all these um, concerns. Yeah. Yes? No, um, within the Paris climate uh, Paris yes. climate change, uh, there is a little window of opportunity to long-term planning. Mm -hmm. This doesn't get very much air in it, unfortunately. Right. Because it focuses on the um, nationally determined contributions. Mm -hmm. But one of the countries that's taking this very seriously is China, yes. which has, doesn't have to go down the line of uh, pleasing the uh, yes. <laughs> mm -hmm. different parties. I was just wondering if, in your own work, um, you're involved in any um, long-term planning in the UK or the Yes, yes, yes. Yes. Well, I, I'm a sort of spectator and only peripherally involved in these things. But, uh, but there are these plans. But of course, uh, you're quite right in implying that uh, um, uh, this is one advantage the Chinese have in uh, not having um, five yearly elections, so that they can uh, plan more long term. And this advantage they have. Um, probably over, over India in these, in these connections, um, because it does require long-term planning. And the other issue related to that is the extent to which one will have to um, uh, sort of uh, surrender national authority to international bodies, um, uh, as we do in the International Atomic Energy Agency, for instance. Um, do, we, do we need a new International Energy Agency, for instance, or an International um, Environment Agency, or something like that? We, we may have to move in, in that direction. Um, but uh, um, there's lots of discussion, but actually um, making effective plans and sticking to them is something which uh, um, Western governments, particularly ours, have not been very good at. Gentlemen, Over the past two years, British Pope Walsh has put a lot of effort into recruiting students yes. to the cause. Um, welcome as they are, most of these students tend to be from the social sciences. We, we have a great dearth of physicists and engineers. And, uh, I also know that, that physicists and engineers are, are uh, disproportionately represented amongst groups like ISIS and Al-Qaeda. And I wonder, what are we doing wrong? Mm -hmm. Yes. Well, I mean, there's the, the factor two. I mean, uh, uh, as, as far as I didn't know about the balance within Pugwash, but uh, I have been encouraged, actually, by other uh, movements. There's something called the Effective Altruism Movement, and there's another movement called 80,000 Hours, which is the number of hours in working life, uh, which is um, uh, ensuring that young people do think about um, how they can make the best use of their, their lives, etc. And these groups certainly flourish in a number of universities, um, certainly in Cambridge and Oxford and, uh, and Berkeley and others, they have international meetings. So, so I think um, uh, there is a general tendency, understandably, for those under 30 to care more about these issues since they will be alive 
um, towards the end of a century. Um, and uh, I, I think students um, are, on the whole, um, more engaged than the older people in this. Um, but um, as regards the balance between social sciences and uh, uh, natural sciences, I wouldn't want to comment. We'll take a last question at the back. Firstly, um, <coughs> I just wanted to say thank you for your talk. It was really impressive. Um, at the moment, it seems that like we're facing one of the biggest refugee crises in history. And I think with the worsening effects on the climate, that's only going to increase. We're yes. seeing more and more you know, refugees, not only from war, but from climate change. And I was wondering what you thought that the possibilities technology will offer us to help cope with this and help, help these people. Um, well, I mean, uh, this is a very difficult problem, and I think it's going to be aggravated because uh, um, the, um, the people in the um, disadvantaged parts of the world know what they're missing. They, they know uh, what our life is like as compared to theirs. Um, so um, I think it's going to uh, involve sort of uh, more redistribution and more support, obviously, for how they can cope with climate change because they're more vulnerable than we are. Um, but... Uh, I, th I think beyond, beyond that, uh, we've, we've got to sim simply ensure that um, we do what we can to enable those countries to develop. I mean, I think uh, um, Professor Paul Collier in, in Oxford has, uh, has pointed out, I think, that um, rather than uh, uh, um, encouraging or even allowing refugees to come to Europe, um, to set up factories, um, subsidised factories in the countries where where these people live um, would, be, would be very helpful because uh, um, they, they don't want to leave their countries and come here particularly if they can earn a living where they are. They'd rather do that. So uh, again, I, I speak as a complete non-expert, but I think if we can somehow um, subsidise developments of industry and work in those countries, then th that will provide people with a more satisfying life and reduce their motivation for um, feeling they have to come to Europe. Thank you. Well, before we uh, thank Lord Rees, I want to uh, thank uh, Rakshad Bandari from our own staff and people uh, who are interested in uh, uh, grown-up Pugwash uh, can uh, talk to John Finney and uh, student Pugwash can uh, talk to uh, Kevin Mletich, uh, one of uh, our staff in, uh, in the centre. Um, so with those uh, two points of contact with Pugwashites, um, I would uh, like to ask you to, uh, to join with me in... Uh, Hugely thanking uh, Lord Rees for a most entertaining and engaging uh, evening on a range of topics which uh, should uh, keep us all busy for a very long time. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you.